So today is the 15th day of the lunar cycle, Impositor Day, Full Moon Day. As many of our teachers remind us, if you're really going to practice the Dhamma, then you have to develop some firm faith, conviction in Buddha Dhamma Sangha. The word in Thai is Satha Lumsai, in Pali Satha Pasata. Satha means firm conviction. Pasada means like clarity or even radiance of mind that comes together with the firm conviction. That's a firm conviction in the enlightenment of the Buddha. The Buddha was a self-enlightened teacher, truly understood the way out of suffering, as explained in the Four Noble Truths. Truly free from suffering, with the wisdom and the compassion to teach others how to, or the way to free themselves from suffering. The Dhamma is the Swakata Dhamma, it's well expounded well-taught Dhamma. You have a conviction that what the Buddha taught is well-taught. It's true and it's explained well. And the words of the Buddha point to the truth being well-explained, well-expounded. <coughs> the Dhamma is the means by which we are free our minds from suffering by understanding it. So there's the Four Noble Truths. We come to penetrate understanding what is dukkha, knowing dukkha as dukkha. Dukkha is to be known, dukkha has been known as dukkha. Suffering birth, old age, sickness and death, the pain and suffering of a body and mind, of human existence, of these five candors. The cause of suffering, ignorance, craving and attachment, which is to be abandoned, for the Buddha has been abandoned. Niroda, the end of suffering, to be realized. And the path that leads to the end of suffering, to be developed, cultivated, the Eightfold Path. All the teachings fit into these Four Noble Truths, just like all the animals' footprints in the forest fit into the footprint of the elephant.
the Sangha, those who have realized the truth following in the footsteps of the Buddha, enlightened beings since the time of the Buddha to the present. The conviction that human beings following these teachings can purify their minds, free them from greed, anger and delusion. One develops a firm conviction in the Sangha, the Arya Sangha. And the Buddha taught one who has firm conviction in Buddha Dhamma Sangha will obviously put those teachings into practice. So it naturally leads on to the intention to refrain from killing, refrain from stealing, refrain from sexual misconduct, refrain from false speech and to refrain from taking drink and drugs that intoxicate the mind. It's a natural step that arises having strong, firm conviction in the Buddha's enlightenment, in the Dhamma that is well taught, in the enlightened Sangha. It's a natural step to want to keep the five precepts and to make effort in that direction, knowing that it's for the purification of the mind, the abandoning of kalesas, and for Nibbāna, silena nibbhutinyanti. But in Buddhism, in the Buddhist path and the way Buddhists taught, there's no forcing or compelling anyone to have conviction or to follow the five precepts comes through our own reflection, wise reflection, listening to the teachings, considering them, coming to our own decision. Each individual has to come to their own decision. There's another aspect of the Dhamma that it isn't something that's forced on anyone. The true Dhamma, the well-expounded Dhamma, couldn't be like that. It's teachings that one comes to see because they're apparent here and now and they do free the mind from suffering. One gains a conviction through the practice. And no, one has, no one has to force us to practice. The only real element of, say, that we're compelled to do anything is as bhikkhus we're compelled to keep the vinaya, follow the vinaya, the patimokha, as long as we're bhikkhus. It's just the responsibility of taking on the robes, going through the ordination procedure. We agree to follow the vinaya. If we don't agree, well then we leave. But while we're a monk, well, we're obliged, we're responsible, we're obliged to keep the Vinaya. But other than that, there's no real 
area in Buddhism where anyone is forced to do anything. If people don't wish to practice, then that's their choice. They're not interested, they don't see the value, that's their choice. As because we're not even allowed to go out to convert others unless we're invited to teach or explain Dhamma. We don't. We have rules against that. So it's a teaching that has freedom in its nature, in its essence. And we're free to practice Dhamma Vinaya or not. That brings its own purity. There's nobody forced to do anything. So any intention to practice is something that's very pure. The mind gaining faith, gaining the clarity, the brightness of Pasada, then it wishes to go deeper, investigate further, pursue the teachings and the practice further, seeing that it's valuable to one. There's a purity then, purity of intention and motivation in the practice. Because it's not anything forced upon one, one makes one's own decision. And the emphasis is always coming back to oneself in the practice, taking responsibility for one's own actions, one's practice. Again, the Vinaya has skillful means to support that, see. Part of the Vinaya is the training in a monastery, the rules, the practices, the schedules and routines and so on. They are there to help us, so we say we have meetings or certain practices we do, certain things we do, certain things we don't do. But again, one has to learn to motivate oneself, bring up self-discipline, bring up effort in the practice. But if we understand this point that as we practice and our conviction in the practice becomes firmer, then our understanding of the Four Noble Truths and practice according to the, to the Four Noble Truths deepens, then the mind becomes brighter and it's in our own best interest to practice and to continue practicing. We all want to be happy, free from suffering. So therefore it makes sense to practice, however difficult. And obviously there is much difficulty involved in the practice because we're learning to motivate ourselves, no one is pushing us. And then we have to face and look at dukkha, come to understand it, know it, acknowledge it. Then we have to uproot the causes of dukkha, the ignorance, craving, attachment that causes us dukkha. So we're going right down to the things that the jitta, our mind, clings onto most of all, the five candors and how they manifest for us, our personality, our way of thinking, feelings, memories and so on. Everywhere where we attach, this body, this mind, this is what we're looking at. 
So we have to be very, very patient and be willing to look at dukkha. And this is why we practice, say, particularly on full moon nights, new moon nights, we often stay up late, maybe all night, learning to look at dukkha, but aiming to transcend dukkha through the practice of mindfulness and then wise reflection, wise investigation of what's going on. You can see what turns us off the practice well, when we meet with dukkha vetana, it's probably the number one thing. When we have pain, we want to stop sitting. When we're tired, we want to stop walking. When we're frustrated, we don't want to follow the way of practice, keep the vinaya, and so on. Pain in body and mind turns us away from the practice, makes the mind seek distraction. So we seek any kind of distraction that allows us to absorb into that experience for a while to get away from painful experiences. Whereas the way of Dhamma is more like looking more closely at the pain with mindfulness and learning to transcend it through understanding it as an Ichadukha Anatta. The only way we can do that is to train to be more develop the skills and develop the qualities that will help us to see dukkha as dukkha and see what the cause of dukkha is and then abandon it. Your regular practice supports this. This is why even though say, you might find getting up early in the morning to meditate difficult, sometimes it's tiring, the body is not feeling at its best, the mind is fuzzy or groggy. But if you keep doing it repeatedly, you make a very strong intention in your mind, very firm intention, bringing up mindfulness, contemplating body and mind regularly over and over again. And the mind, little by little, the mindfulness becomes stronger and then samadhi and the experience of pity and sukha will come up little by little. You might experience that you can have pity and sukha even though physically you're tired, run down. Mentally though, pity and sukha can be present even when you're tired, even when you're ill. It may not be strong, but it can be there. And this helps to nourish the mind, bring up more energy and more willingness to practice. Practice becomes interesting the mind doesn't seek distraction so much. We have to train in all the Baramis as we practice. You're practicing sitting meditation. You have to sometimes make a resolution. I'm not going to get up for an hour or two hours or even three hours. And you need such a Barami to keep to that resolution. I made my resolution, well now I'm going to stick to it. I'm not going to give in. Obviously we need Panyabharami to make wise resolutions and aditanas, not to do, take on too much or be unrealistic. But we use these qualities to help train so that we can see the nature of Vaitana is an Anicca Dukkha Anatta. It's impermanent. 
if you sit for a long time, you'll certainly see the impermanence of vetana. Sometimes pain, then the pain disappears. Sometimes great pleasure. But all of this is teaching the mind to see vetana as impermanent. What is impermanent is dukkha. It doesn't last, it's not enduring. What is impermanent dukkha is not self. Vetana is a conditioned thing, arises and passes away according to causes and conditions. And there's no real self in that. The mind doesn't have to grasp at it and take ownership of it. When you sit for a longer period, you'll notice that. You're teaching your mind to have more detachment to see, oh, this is the nature of Vetana, it comes and goes. Even then, our tendency is to want to just get rid of it. So even when we're facing up to it in meditation, we'll be hoping to attain some samadhi where the waitana maybe just disappears temporarily. And if you attain apana samadhi, maybe all the pain just disappears in the body, the mind seems to merge into lightness, brightness, peacefulness. But the Buddha and our teachers didn't actually recommend to just attain that as a way of escaping dukkha vetana. What we have to do is contemplate. So we use whatever level of samadhi we can attain just to hold the mind, to bring it firmness, the firmness of and continuity of mindfulness. And to contemplate, to actually come out of the deepest levels of samadhi and contemplate experience, observe Vaitana, arising and passing away. See how Dukkha Vaitana builds up, maybe it just disappears out of the presence of wisdom, investigation, seeing it as not self. Vaitana doesn't just disappear through samadhi, it can also disappear through wisdom. Even if it doesn't disappear, more important is to see that it's without an owner. Waitana is just waitana. It's just that much. And with mindfulness and wise reflection, looking at waitana as an experience, the mind can see it's impermanent. What is impermanent is without self. So the mind sees the emptiness in that. This is the emptiness coming through wisdom though, not just escaping through samadhi. So it's a very difficult practice when we have to train, develop the qualities that help us to contemplate something as unpleasant as a bit of dukkha vetana or feelings of tiredness, restlessness and so on, whether it's mental pain or physical pain. The more mindfulness we develop, the more continuity, focusing on our object, on the breath, brings with it the qualities say, of the softness of the mind, the brightness, the lightness, the softness, the malleability and workability. As mindfulness is more sustained, the mind you can actually turn to look at something, contemplate it with ease without reacting with aversion or attraction or aversion. Just knowing the experience and gently 
looking on, watching it. You know, the value of samadhi is not to escape dukkha, but to give us the qualities, the underlying support and the firmness of mind and the workability, the malleability of mind that we can contemplate without getting entangled with what we're contemplating. So that sense of quiet detachment allows us to look on at Vaitana. No, Vaitana is like this. And if Panya is sharp, then there's a separation between the mind and the Vaitana. Even if only sometimes just for a few moments. Already that's teaching us. Sometimes it's for longer. Especially on the Upozada days and the holy days, these are practices we can do, sit and walk for longer periods. When I was seven rains, I think that Vasa, pretty much the whole Vasa, spent just practicing netaji, meditating through the night, mostly sitting, only walking when I couldn't sit anymore, but mostly sitting for three months is going on, sometimes totally exhausted, sometimes not. But the mind can get brighter and brighter even in the midst of tiredness. When the mind becomes very, mindfulness becomes stronger then the verbalizations of the mind, the imaginations and so on tend to fade. All the images fade and it's just knowing the brightness of the mind, knowing experience. You learn a lot like that. <coughs> you learn how to motivate yourself, especially if you're doing it maybe just in a place where there's just you or one or two others. You know, it's no real worldly gain from such a practice. One has to see it as valuable just for the Dhamma. The more we meditate, then the more we appreciate the whole path as a whole. We start to appreciate the Eightfold Noble Path, how all the factors support the practice of right mindfulness, right concentration. We need right speech, right action and right view to guide it and to support those practices. So if we're practicing meditation regularly, we'll constantly be looking back at our own reflections, attitudes, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we act, and just we'll naturally become more aware of what is the path and what is not the path. You naturally become more aware of saying that just the very first teachings the Buddha gave. Karma Sukhalikanu Yoga, Atakilamatani Yoga. You know, the level of practice or the way of practice that is just self harm. Pain for the sake of pain you're hoping to somehow burn off kilesis just by giving oneself a lot of pain and discomfort. Generally that puts, when it becomes extreme like that and backed by a wrong view, then it just puts the mind in a way that it can't really contemplate. It might develop endurance and certain qualities of energy and endurance, but there's no real wisdom arising. Karma Sukhalikanu Yoga is more obvious. Indulgence in sense, 
pleasure sense objects we'll see that it, that tendency coming up all the time looking for comfort and giving more value more importance to it than it deserves because obviously the objects of the senses are very fleeting in the pleasure they can give us but even though they're fleeting they're not to be overlooked because they can be very deluding Especially when we practice living in a monastery, when there isn't so much distraction, then sense pleasures and the desire for sensuality can focus on very simple things. The simple pleasures that we are experiencing, food and sleep. It's easy to get into the habits of indulging in food and drink, sleeping, daydreaming, fantasizing. That tendency to always look to indulge, to get away from the present moment, get away maybe from some unpleasantness or lack of peace we are experiencing. There's more the view of just seeing that as a way of ultimate happiness. If I indulge and indulge, indulge, I'll be happy, lead to some lasting happiness. Well, it doesn't, does it? It leads to disappointment, despair, makes the experience of dukkha worse in the long run. These two tendencies are there affecting us all the time in our practice. Sometimes we push too hard, sometimes we just indulge. We're learning to keep practicing but in a balanced way. A balanced way for each individual might be different because we have different physical bodies, we have different minds, different karmic accumulations, so we have to learn our own level of balance. So sometimes we push a bit hard, sometimes we indulge, and then we have to pull back to the middle way. Where we can't really compromise is say in the Vinaya, that's our foundation. If we If we have conviction in the Buddha's enlightenment and then the Dhamma that is well taught and then we keep the Vinaya, we keep the eight precepts, the ten precepts or the Patimokha. There's no real room for negotiation or excuses with that. But the more you practice then the more you appreciate the value of the Vinaya because it's taking you away from suffering, taking you beyond suffering, transcending suffering to, towards Nibbana. Yeah, the more you practice, the more you appreciate its value. But sometimes, especially in the beginning, we have to just rely on a lot of patience and trust in the, in the value of the precepts. If you have a few experiences keeping the precepts and, say, restraining your more coarser defilements, the tendency to express say anger or aggression, tendency to express greed or lust. Once you've practiced with it for a while you start to see the value. It keeps you out of trouble and makes meditation easier, smoother. And just learning to practice restraint in daily life. It's not necessarily something we are good at naturally when we enter the monastery. It's an acquired skill. 
But look at what happens when you're unrestrained. Look at the suffering that comes when you indulge your kilesas. You indulge the tendency towards disharmony or aggression or selfishness, then you end up often having problems with other people, other bhikkhus or other people, feeling regret, guilt, unhappy with yourself. When we indulge sensuality, it leads to a lot of confusion, distraction, stress in another way. And just look at that tendency to want to look and indulge just the eyes, the ears. Most likely it's with the female form. If you're a celibate bhikkhu, then you tend to have the desire to see the female form. But if you keep looking at the female form, it's dangerous, isn't it? it leaves deep mental impressions often that are very hard to shake off. Sajjan Chah reminded us, there's nothing like the look of a lady or the sound, the smell, taste, touch. Very alluring. This is the senses, the allure, alluring senses that stick in the mind, bring up more memories that we have to work through. If you're careless with Say, looking at females in the face, in the eyes. It's only a matter of time, just statistically, it's only a matter of time before you see one that you like and desire arises. And again, it's only a matter of time before you, you see one and they see you and they like you. So if you get attraction arising between two people, it's an immense amount of work you have to go through to let go of that. Because the attraction between the sexes brings up not just images, but strong emotions, feelings, desires. Then we practice a lot of restraint, looking away, not looking at people so much in the eyes, being aware of them. We say what we have to say when there's a need. If there's no need, we don't say anything and we don't have to look. So on Bindabhat, we keep our eyes cast down. Or walking around the monastery, you learn not to look at people directly in the face, even talking to them. Be a bit careful. If you don't have to talk, then you don't talk. The reason is because we're guarding over the jitter. guarding from falling into attraction. When we're upset with someone, we're guarding from falling into aversion. Same problem, if you're angry with someone, you keep looking them in the face, well the anger will grow, and they'll probably get angry with you. Same problem. All of these experiences leave impressions on the mind. You go away, and they can just be spinning around in your mind, visually, Mentally, memories, thoughts. The thought of a, the memory of an attractive person, a lady you've fallen in love with, maybe can last for a year, five years, a long time. Same with many things music, art, whatever our personality is attracted towards. Can spin around in the mind for months and years on end. The more you contemplate this and the more you're working to bring up mindfulness and the more you see the value of sense restraint and composure in daily life. 
starts to protect the mind, give you some detachment and the peace that comes with the detachment. It doesn't make you somebody who doesn't know what's going on in the world or cold, indifferent. But you're just protecting your mind from falling into kilesa. There's because we have a certain value to the world, even if we don't say a single word to anyone, we're still teaching people because we're reminding them of the spiritual path, practice of celibacy, harmlessness, frugality, compassion and so on. So we don't necessarily have to talk to a lot of people and get involved with them. Just being a bhikkhu or a samanera or anagarika, following the rules of training, practicing mindfulness, contemplating the teachings already, we're being an example to others. We don't have to rush off to get involved too, too much with the world because it's risky for our practice. If we start teaching too quick, then we end up teaching the wrong thing. If we haven't really understood the Four Noble Truths very much, maybe we end up teaching the Three Noble Truths, or the Two, or the Eight, or the Nine. Get it all wrong too quickly. So there's no need to rush to be a teacher. We learn our trade first, learn how to be a good bhikkhu first. How to keep the Vinaya, how to practice mindfulness, how to reflect on the Dhamma. As we do that, then naturally our ability to help others will grow from it, but in a natural way, in an organic way, without forcing it. As Ajahn Chah said, if you really have faith in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, then the practice is very straightforward. Even if you have lots of kilesas and problems and issues, there's always a way forward, there's always a way to practice with whatever's arising in your life. There's always a pathway to follow. If our faith is still shaky, then doubts, uncertainty comes in. Well, it has the opposite effect on the mind. Just as faith brings clarity and radiance to the mind, doubt brings fuzziness, murkiness, darkness. You have to keep listening to the Dhamma and reflecting on it. If we have a lot of doubts, reminding ourselves and then considering, thinking it over. We don't have to think too much about time frame of practice. The important thing is to have a right view and a conviction in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. As far as time frame goes, oh, it may be shorter, quicker, or longer, slower in terms of time for practice. That doesn't matter as long as we maintain right view. If we lose our conviction and our right view in the practice, then the mind becomes full of down, it's not steady, it becomes shaky, shakeable. Even the smallest little problem becomes a big problem, makes us emotional or unhappy in ourselves. Somebody has strong conviction in Buddha Dhamma Sangha, maybe they face a whole army or terrible illness or something, they don't worry because they have conviction in the path and they know what path they're following. 
not even afraid to die because it's a good way to die, practicing as a bhikkhu. Practicing to realize the noble, four noble truths. Whether you're enlightened or not, it doesn't matter. As long as you're practicing, you could even die. If you stay in the robes, well, you will die in the robes. What a better, what better way to die. Contemplating death brings up even more conviction if you use it skillfully. As you realize everything else that you could pursue in the world is pretty much a dead end. Temporary forms of pleasure, mental experiences, physical experiences, and each dukkha anatta. Whereas the Dhamma that's well expounded, the more we draw our minds to understand that Dhamma, the more the purification of the mind takes place and you have some real certainty inside, some real spiritual wealth inside. So I'll leave you with these words for your reflection. We can meditate for a bit longer. <coughs> 